Good morning. The theme of Trinity Wesleyan Church for this year is 2020 vision. We want to see God as he truly is while also becoming the people that God longs to see. Let me read a passage of scripture to you this morning that will help guide us as we look at how the shadow of the cross should transform our vision. It comes from Matthew chapter 27, verse 39 through 40. It says this, Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. You know, when it comes to spiritual matters, most of us don't really see ourselves as being all that special. We're probably not the greatest spiritual heroes that will define the generation of our faith. We're also not the ones that would be written about in Hebrews chapter 11, where we're told of a great cloud of witnesses who demonstrate extraordinary faith. But the flip side of this is that we're also not completely devoid of faith either. To use an image from Revelation chapter 3 in Jesus' letter to the church at Laodicea, he identifies people in the church that are either hot, lukewarm, or cold. Now clearly this passage is identifying the fact that God wants us to be extremely hot all the time. In other words, passionate for Him. Instead, many in the church would be considered lukewarm, not cold, completely separate from Him, but somewhere in the middle. And I won't be teaching on Revelation chapter 3 today, but this gives you an idea of what I'm talking about. Not too many people see themselves on the extreme of faith. Incredible spiritual heroes or those who are spiritual zeros. In our passage today, we see a group of characters that seem insignificant. They are average. They're not the disciples who had spent the previous three plus years following Jesus, learning from everything that he had to say, and partnering with him in ministry. But they're also not the Pharisees or the religious leaders or even the Roman soldiers who had arranged for Jesus' crucifixion and even executed it. These are simply people who are passing by. This is an interesting thing to which we can probably relate fairly well. Imagine that you're riding down the road and you see blue and red lights flashing ahead of you. It's an accident. It's on the other side of the highway. Well, what do you do when you get close to that accident? You slow down. You look to see what's happening. Out of curiosity, you want to know what took place. Well, imagine being in the shoes of those who pass by at Jesus' crucifixion. You didn't get up that morning thinking that you were going to watch an execution. You're on your way to Jerusalem, perhaps even to go to the temple. After all, this is the time of the Passover celebration, and it is likely that the streets would have been packed on this particular day. And of course, crucifixions, they really weren't all that uncommon in this day. It was normal for criminals to hang on the cross. The Romans did it different than the way we do capital punishment today. Typically, when a person is killed today as punishment for their crime, it is 
done in a relatively private setting with a few witnesses, maybe some officials and family members of the victims, but typically that's about all. The Romans were the exact opposite. They wanted the executions to be as public as possible. They wanted this to be a lesson to others so that they would not make the same choices that the criminals had made. So the crucifixion occurs on the main road heading in and out of Jerusalem. And on this day, there would have been many who simply passed by. Some would have looked with curiosity, much like we do when we see those accidents, while others quickly would have passed judgment on the one who hung from the cross, assuming that whomever this person had been, he was getting what he deserved. But they were also wrong. The Gospel of Matthew tells of the judgment which these people passing by carried. It says that they shook their heads, mocking him with insults. This is the same thing that's described in Psalm chapter 22, verse 7, which says, Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. It is a sign of disapproval and shame. It is the idea that you are getting what you deserve. I want to share one other example of this shaking of the head from Scripture. But this other example may be viewed as a little bit in your face based on where we are at today. Remember that this was written to a nation that existed thousands of years ago. But I am afraid that it could apply very easily today. I want you to consider the words of Jeremiah chapter 18. And I'm going to read more than just a few verses. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. And then I will skip down to verse 16. It says this, beginning in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, Go down to the potter's shop, and I will speak to you there. So I did as he told me and found the potter working at his wheel. But the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped. So he crushed it into a lump of clay again and started over. Then the Lord gave me this message. O Israel, can I not do to you as this potter has done to his clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. If I announce that a certain nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, but then that nation renounces its evil ways, I will not destroy it as I had planned. And if I announce that I will plant and build up a certain nation or kingdom, but then that nation turns to evil and refuses to obey me, I will not bless it as I said I would. Therefore, Jeremiah, Go and warn all Judah and Jerusalem. Say to them, this is what the Lord says. I am planning disaster for you instead of good. So turn from your evil ways, each of you, and do what is right. And in verse 12, but the people replied, don't waste your breath. We will continue to live as we want to, stubbornly following our own evil desires. I wonder if perhaps God has been trying to get the attention 
of our nation for many, many years. We as a nation were founded on biblical principles, yet we have moved so far away from those principles. Sexual immorality now takes many, many forms. The murder of unborn children has become acceptable. We live for entertainment and for prosperity. And in too many places, the family seems to have completely fallen apart. Even the church has become impotent or powerless, calling people to goodness rather than repentance and holiness, attempting to be attractive to others rather than being reflective of a holy God. And God says that it is time to turn back from your sin. Otherwise, you will suffer. You will be destroyed. This may sound crazy to you, but I've actually seen this happen firsthand. An individual raises the alarm regarding sinful behavior in a church or on a college campus, a Christian college campus. And they are the ones who are criticized for being too fanatical. In essence, they respond with, don't waste your breath. We will continue to live as we want to, stubbornly following our own evil desires. I wonder how you will respond. The point of this is to say that sometimes we as ordinary people look upon the brokenness of others and we ignore our own brokenness. The passage goes on to declare God's judgment. And in verse 16, it talks about others walking by and seeing the punishment of God shaking their heads. Maybe instead of shaking our heads, we simply need to change our perspective. Maybe we need to look within and see if there be anything in us that needs to change. I said it this week in a Facebook message, but I don't believe that every crisis or disease is a punishment from God. Nor is it because God is trying to get the attention of an individual or a nation. Often it is simply because we live in a sinful world. Therefore, sickness and death will take place. But when we go through crisis experiences like this, it ought to serve as an opportunity for us to evaluate where we are spiritually. God, am I living in a way that would merit your blessing? If not, what needs to change in me? I don't want to shake my head and be stubborn. <laughs> I want to be transformed from ordinary to extraordinary. I also want to point out that the Gospel of Luke in chapter 23 does portray those who pass by in a different light. He says that they simply watched. So they didn't hurl insults, but they watched. And this does sound better than those who shook their heads hurling insults, but either way, there's a problem. They may not be hurling insults, but they are silently complicit. This is one that is fairly easy for us to, to apply to our own lives. 
It is likely that many who passed by had at least heard of Jesus and the good things which he had done. Some of them had probably sat through his sermons or witnessed him healing the blind, the lame, or the leper. As they come upon this act of injustice, they can stand up for him or they can sit back and just watch. Which would you choose? Uh, it's easy for us to say today, I would have stood up for him. I would have stood strong, but not a single individual stood up for Christ in that moment. Jesus said, whatever you have done unto the least of these, so you have done unto me. When you see others who are broken, do you merely watch as you walk by? Do you offer to pray for them? Or do you offer to do whatever it takes to help them in that moment? Please understand that there is a difference between helping someone and enabling them. But most often the struggle within the church has been more closely connected to doing too little rather than doing too much. The church cannot afford inaction in the face of injustice. We must be about being the hands and feet of Jesus, helping people to not only hear about Christ's love, but to show them Christ's love. Well, let's take a look at the second point of our passage today. The first one was to identify ordinary people with ordinary vision. The second is to point out one who would become an extraordinary sacrifice, looking beyond the surface extraordinary vision. As Jesus hangs from the cross, the insult that is given is one that we can relate to. Save yourself. Think about this for just a moment. The man who came to save all of humanity can't even save himself. I say that he can't save himself, but the truth is he could have saved himself. He could have called down 10,000 angels but he chose not to. But the insult is still there. And the insult reveals the self-centered nature of those who are passing by versus the other-centered nature which Christ held. Jesus sees, sees things differently. It's not all about him. It's all about fulfilling the sacrificial requirements of the law. It's all about fulfilling his purpose why he came to earth in the first place. That's why he could pray while being insulted and while suffering on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. His heart and his vision was different than those who passed by. Maybe you would say, well, well, that's nice, but he was Jesus, and you can't expect normal people like us to have a heart like that. You can't expect us to be completely selfless. We live in a selfish culture that teaches us to save ourselves. I wonder, though, if this is unrealistic for those not named Jesus, how did Stephen do it? As he prayed the same prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. But what about the Apostle Paul? who gave up prosperity and comfort for the sake of following Christ? Or what about the disciples who left their jobs and their homes 
to follow Jesus around for three years. I get it. We still think that they weren't just ordinary people. They were anointed by God to do some incredible things. And I will agree with that statement. But I will also add that you were too. The difference is that they chose to be more than ordinary. They chose to allow God to have complete control of their lives. And they changed the world as a result of it. What could God do through you if you chose extraordinary over ordinary? The last thing I'll point out is the rest of their insult. Jesus is challenged to save himself if you are the Son of God. This is important primarily because of what we talked about last week. Do you remember the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples regarding who Jesus was? They gave a list of answers that other people have said, and then Jesus says, But who do you say that I am? And in Matthew 16, Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus declares that it is on this rock, this foundation, that Christ is going to build his church. The very thing that those passing by mock him with is the foundation of our faith. If Jesus is not the Son of God, then he is not perfect. If he is not perfect, he is not a good enough sacrifice for our sins. This reveals two things. First, their taunt reveals that they were not completely oblivious to who Jesus was. They knew what Jesus had said about himself. I and the Father am one. They knew that Jesus had recently stood before Caiaphas and the religious elders as recorded in Mark chapter 14, verse 61 through 62. And he was asked, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? His response, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Within his response, he declares twice that he is the Son of God. He begins with the phrase, I am. His original audience would have seen this as a direct correlation to the way God identified himself at the burning bush with Moses many, many years earlier. And the reference to him sitting on a throne at God's right hand and coming out of the clouds was a direct reference to prophecies previously spoken by Daniel. So those who passed by did know who they were looking at, who they were dealing with. But the other thing that is revealed here is that Jesus knows who he is. He doesn't feel the need to prove it to the mockers. He already knows that he is the Son of God. He knows that his life serves a bigger purpose. And he won't be sucked into lesser things. I confess that sometimes I struggle with this. I see people sharing their political opinions, for example, about everything. And I want so much to get online and to set them straight. 
But then I remember that I have a bigger purpose. And I think that you do too. Maybe it's time we start living in the extraordinary rather than the ordinary. Maybe it's time we start seeing things the way that God sees them rather than the way that the rest of the world sees them. I wonder today, what does God see in you? In what way do you see the rest of the world? Do you see yourself as ordinary, just like everybody else? You're not any better than others, but you're really not any worse than others. Is average okay? I don't believe that God ever intended us to settle for average. God wants us to be more than passers-by. He wants us to be people who will change the world. Will you allow God to do that through you? Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, oh, we are so grateful that you have called us to be more than ordinary. That you have called us to be extraordinary, used by you to change the world. I pray today that each individual listening, I pray that you would have your way in us. Help us to not follow you half-heartedly. Help us to not respond with stubbornness when you address things that do not belong in our lives. Help us be willing to look within our own hearts and recognize that what does not belong must be removed. Lord, help us to be all in for you, fully surrendered to you, to see ourselves the way you see us, as valued, as precious. And I pray that you would use us to make a difference in the lives of other people. Help us from this moment forward to walk not as those who are ordinary, but those who are extraordinary. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.